this week on the Back Table Podcast. Yeah, I think for a distal tumor, there's a few things that I hope for. If it's so distal that I can do a TUR of the UO and possibly get it, I'm always excited to be able to do that because I feel like it's probably safer than a, a semi-rigid ureteroscope trying to do a biopsy. But if it's kind of, you know, above that, it's outside the tunnel in the ureter, I'll use the semi-rigid. You know, I remind people all the time that the semi-rigid ureteroscope is a weapon, right? It's a two-handed device. You have have one hand out on the, the far end and one hand back at the back and a two-point fulcrum, you know, security and just be as cautious as you can. But those, the distal ones are tough. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. Backtable Urology is brought to you by Eurogen Pharma, the maker of Gelmito, a mitomycin pyrocalicil solution, the only FDA-approved therapy for low-grade upper tract urothelial carcinoma, or UTUC. Gelmito can be used alone or as part of a multimodal approach with resection or ablation. In the Olympus study, Joe Mito demonstrated a complete response in 58% of the patients. The most common adverse reaction were ureteric obstruction, flank pain, urinary tract infection, hematuria, abdominal pain, fatigue, renal dysfunction, nausea, dysuria, and vomiting. Joe Mito was studied in adults with treatment naive and recurring low-grade UTUC and can be used in a diverse population of patients with low-grade UTUC. Jomito is contraindicated in patients with perforation of the bladder or upper urinary tract. For full prescribing information and additional important safety information, visit jomito.com backslash ACP. Now, back to the show. This is Jose Oche Silva as your host this week. We have Dr. Katie Murray. Dr. Katie Murray did her residency at University of Kansas Medical Center. After this, she went on to do a fellowship in urologic oncology from MSK, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center uh, in New York. And she's currently a urologic oncologist at University of Missouri. Kato, welcome to Backtable. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. No, no, thank you. So today we're going to talk about upper tract cancer. Is this your main focus? What do you do in your practice? Yeah, so I practice all urologic oncology, but I do see a lot of patients with upper tract disease, despite being, you know, in a smaller town here in Missouri. And so ha do have a very recent experience in, in treating quite a few patients with upper tract urethelial. Good. So, so what is surprising to me about, I mean, now the AUA has all sorts of guidelines, but there's none for upper tract cancer. I mean, if you were to guess, you know, is it something that is infrequent? Why, why, why is that? Yeah. So I think, you know, it's interesting, you know, like you state that, that the AUA does not have guidelines for upper tract disease, right? This is in contrast to the Europeans who do have some, you know, set out things for upper tract disease specifically. You know, if we go back in time, I think that so much of what we did in upper tract was directly related and just assumed from what we know in bladder cancer. We know now in 2022, that's probably not correct. And in many ways, not correct. 
you know, and so it leads us as urologists, especially here in the United States, depending and relying on, you know, extrapolating from bladder, but then also looking at our NCCN guidelines and those European guidelines to help reference our practices. Yeah, it, it seems like we're always behind. I mean, they, they do for the Europeans do them first, and then five days later we we come up with ours. That's right. So so because also I think they the same thing for testicular. I mean, we're still waiting for testicular cancer guidelines. So let's talk about the upper track and and, and what you do in your practice in terms of the initial evaluation. Are, are you seeing these patients de novo, or most of them are are referred to you already with the diagnosis? Yeah, I, I see a good combination. So probably half and half of what I see. You know, I'm in mid-Missouri. So as a urologic oncologist, a good chunk of patients that I see do get diagnosed with upper tract or, or some disease from a general urologist, and then they get referred in for treatment or for surgery. That being said, you know, there's still large chunks of patients who you're seeing for their gross hematuria workup. You're seeing for their microscopic hematuria workup. And guess what you find? You find bladder cancers, you find upper tract urothelial cancers, and so you're finding those de novo uh, at the same time. And and th those patients, when you were doing uh, microscopic workup uh, or, or, or hematuria workup, uh, you're doing the, the CT urogram, cystoscopy. Are you doing cystoscopy in these patients in, in, in the office uh, with blue light, or what are you doing, just regular cystoscopies? Yeah, so I actually have, you know, I do a regular cystoscopy. At our institution, we have Olympus Towers and Olympus Scopes. So I use uh, routine cystoscopy with the option of narrowband imaging or NBI technology as an enhanced cystoscopy. Part of that, I think, is important to for whatever technology you have for enhanced cystoscopy is, is to use it on as many patients as you can just to get that experience. You know, and so NBI does have the capability of being able to, you know, flip the switch and not do that preoperative preparation with a catheter in, in the cyst view. And so you can flip over to MBI and take a quick glance at, at patients' bladders with that. So I will do that on a majority of cystos that I do. Part of it's for my own experience. Of course, I'm at a training institution as well. And so to see that with that enhanced cystoscopy. But definitely CT urogram, cystoscopy, for those patients with gross hematuria, and then a majority of patients, especially if they have any sort of risk factors, older age, previous history of smoking, any family history, we're talking about doing that for microscopic hematuria as well. And those patients that, for example, uh, let's say that you, you do the urine cytology is negative, but they continue with microscopic hematuria risk factors. You do retrograde, and for some reason, you cannot do some contrast study. Are you doing retrogrades? Are you doing Eutroscopies on these patients? Because it, it seems like it's changing all the time uh, in terms of the guidelines. Yeah, you know, I think that's a great point. And it, it's always a question. And, you know, part of it is dependent, like you said, on, on the patient's risk factors. But also with that is the patient's comorbidities, right? How much and what are you looking for? So if I have a patient with, you know, just microscopic hematuria, and we have non-axial or non-invasive imaging with an ultrasound that shows no hydronephrosis, a cystoscopy is negative, I may send a urine cytology. If that's negative, I will forego retrograde pilograms. Of course, you know, any gross hematuria changes that. Otherwise, ongoing microscopic seeing, you know, and, and repeating a workup every couple of years. Okay. And in those patients that you do find something, let's say, if you do a retrograde and you have a feeling defect, would you do a cystoscopy at the moment so, so you get the consent 
for also doing vitroscopy with, with some sort of biopsy? I would. You know, I would, would go ahead and proceed to do it at that point in time. You know, that's when I make the comment that I'm from Missouri. We're, we're known as the show me state. So I want to look and see it with my own eyes. Okay. And those patients that, let, let's say, that patient that, that you didn't, you were not planning on, on finding anything, but you had the risk factors, is in the OR, you decide, okay, so, so let's go in and, and, and do utroscopy. Uh, in this, would you do a rigid, flexible? Uh, is there a difference? I would use a flexible ureteroscope so that I can ensure that I see the entire ureter as well into the collecting system. I would not use a semi-rigid unless I had somebody who I had some suspicion that there was a more distal filling defect or something that I thought I could really just focus on on the bottom half. Otherwise, I'm going to put a flexible ureteroscope, preferably without a ureteral access sheath at that point in time. We can get into that later. If, if you find something and you're going to do an, an ablation or a treatment, you know what you do with a, a sheath then. And in those patients, I mean, so let, let, let's go ahead and, and talk about a patient that you already know has something there. The, the CT urogram came back with, with uh, some sort of feeling defect. Most likely there is a mass. Let's say that it's not infiltrated into the parenchyma, something, a feeling defect in, in the renal pelvis. What do you tell the patient? What, what are you going to do? What's the planning for that patient? Yeah. So, you know, that's the patient that I'm, I'm sitting in clinic. I have the CT urogram in front of me. I, I show them the pictures, right? There's clearly something blocking the drainage, right? It's not filling up right here. So I'm going to take you to the operating room. We get multiple things with one operation. I get to look inside your bladder at the time. I evaluate that. If there's anything inside your bladder, I'll take care of that at the same time. I'm going to throw the, the ureteroscope or run the scope all the way up your ureter so I can sat and see that entire tube and then up in your kidney. First things first, I'm going to take a biopsy of that. Those are hard biopsies for us to get. You know, and I kind of explain that to the patient, you know, off the get-go that we may have complications in kind of getting that tissue and, and what kind of scope, you know, French we're working through and what we're dealing with. And so, you know, we'll talk about that, but attempt to do a biopsy. If it looks to be something that I can easily endoscopically ablate, I'll tell the patient, you know, if it's something I can take care of, I'll try to take care of it right then and there on the spot, right? So you get it all for one. If it's something that's large and I, I just can't take care of it through the scope and may require more of an operation or other treatments, I'll get my biopsy. I'll make sure we don't have a lot of bleeding. We'll stop. I'll go talk to your family after surgery. We'll all sit down in a week or so from, from now and, and have this kind of sit-down conversation of what do we do now and go from there. And in those patients, are you, do, are you using an acid sheath for, for the biopsy part or you're just going straight with the flexible and then using like a piranha or something to get the biopsy? Yeah. So my preference is, is if I know somebody has a tumor and I see that on urogram, I like to put a ureteral access sheath. Because I also think anytime you're using a piranha, whether you're using a big opsy, whether you're using a basket, we can talk about ways to get biopsies. You know, dragging that down the ureter, I feel like even in the excess sheath in and of itself is less likely to fall off of your biopsy than running it down the ureter through the bladder and down the prostatic urethra for that matter to get a good biopsy. The other idea, of course, is it's a cancer. It's urothelial cancer, right? Urothelial cancer can implant anywhere along the urothelium. And so, you know, you get a big biopsy. You don't love the idea of running it down the, the entire rest of the ureter. And in, in, let's say a patient that for some reason, just, just like with stones, I mean, 
sometimes you cannot go into a ureter. Will you put a stent and come back later or what do you do? Yeah, great question. I personally am not a ureteral dilator, so I, I will not balloon dilate just to get access to somebody. Now, that always brings up the question, do you really want to stent somebody that you think has an upper tract tumor and seed it down to the bladder? I feel like for the, the limited amount of time that you need for a stent, you know, to dilate that ureter to be able to get a ureteroscope up, it's probably fairly low risk. And so I will just stent those people, bring them back in 10, 12 days, something like that for my ureteroscopy. The idea of doing a balloon dilation or something that's more aggressive than just a regular ureteral access sheath type dilation, if you can't get it, you know, you haven't seen inside that ureter. You haven't seen if there's, you know, it could there be a tumor there that's, you know, concentric that's compressing that ureter. And I, just the idea of balloon dilating doesn't sound great to me. True. Ba balloon dilation without knowing actually what, there, what is there. I mean, it can be, like I said, I mean, multiple things, not necessarily a str stricture, a stone, something else, right. anything else that, that can be there and, you, and you, you can create more damage. So let's talk about, you mentioned the ablation and, and at that time. So guide us through the process. Are you use a laser? What do you do when you're there in that kidney and you say, well, it's something small. Let's do an ablation, try to see what, what's going on. Yeah. So, you know, you're up there. If you've just taken a glance, I will go back, like I said, and put that ureteral access sheath in if I can. Otherwise, you know, you're working through your normal flexible ureteroscope. You're up in the, the renal pelvis and you ask for your laser. I'm using a 150 to 200 watt laser, obviously something that'll fit through your ureteroscope. With tissue settings, I don't think that it matters the type of laser. There's lots of lasers out there. You know, there's with Moses technology, now there's thulium lasers that may be a little bit better with coagulation and those type of currents. But, you know, my idea is always to, to get down to the base of the tumor and, you know, you try to resect it versus just scattering and shattering things everywhere and doing that as much as possible until you see no obvious tumor. One thing that we haven't talked about is, is, is how do you manage your visualization, right? A pressure bag versus a pump system. You know, at, at my institution, we use a, a SAPS or a single action pump system with the syringe to keep that irrigation flowing. That being said, I think it's extremely important to have, you know, communicating with your the person that's doing that to not push too much pressure, big bursts, you know, into into the ureter, into the kidney at the same time that you're doing those ablations. But it's got to be enough that you can see. Is there a risk of metastasis because of, of depression? I mean, are, are you pushing cells towards the kidney? That's always a concern on our minds, I think. It's the same as, you know, if you're doing a stone and somebody's got an infectious stone, right? It's what you're worried about. And so the problem is, is we don't know what that pressure is as a urologist, right? We have in our minds, you know, the perfect amount of pressure, not too much pressure. And maybe that's where a pressure bag for, for some individuals is, could be advantageous. I've not ever seen that, of course, is, is it in the back of your mind always. And let's talk about the biopsy. I mean, what is a good biopsy? Sometimes with the piranha, maybe you think you get something, but really it's not there. I mean, how many bites do you try to get? What for you will be good? Yeah, if I can get out a piece of telfa and I can get a biopsy that is visible to the naked eye, on that, you know, I'll feel pretty good about it. Now, one thing that I do always think about is, is if you got a, a really papillary tumor 
and you grab the top edge of it and you pull it out, it's going to be very papillary, right? And, and sometimes that will be a low grade. And so if it appears to be something that I'll take that top half off, maybe do an ablation and I may try to get something even a little bit bulkier, a little bit better at the base. You just mentioned the product. Not a great, you know, it's it's pretty microscopic. You're using a little hypo needle trying to dig it off there and putting on a piece of telfa. You know, I've gone as far as using a marking pin and putting a permanent marker kind of around the circle so the pathologist can find it. So I will often use a stone basket for ureteral biopsies or renal pelvis biopsies. The problem with those are is they do get that papillary kind of fluffiness that's on the outside of the tumor and a little bit harder to use one of those baskets down at the base where you might need to get your piranha out. So any specific basket do you use or? I just use a zero tip nitinol basket. And mostly that's because that's our number one go-to basket for our stones. I do think there's uh, there's a few other baskets, I couldn't even call them by name, that I've seen out there that, that may give you a better grasp, but I've been fairly successful with the nitinol. And for tumors that are in the in the ureter, let's talk about a distal mass. Do you do the rigid and then just try to be careful not to do any any uh, trauma to the good ureter or the prostate or that area? What do you do in those cases? Yeah, I think for a distal tumor, there's few things that I hope for. If it's so distal that I can do a TUR of the UO and possibly get it, I'm always excited to be able to do that because. I feel like it's probably safer than a, a semi-rigid ureteroscope trying to do a biopsy. But if it's kind of, you know, above that, it's outside the tunnel in the ureter, I'll use the semi-rigid. You know, I remind people all the time that the semi-rigid ureteroscope is a weapon, right? It's a two-handed device. You have have one hand out on the, the far end and one hand back at the back and a two-point fulcrum, you know, security and just be as cautious as you can. But those, the distal ones are tough. And you mentioned the resectoscope. In those cases, what do you do? Do you put a stent first or just resect over and hopefully there's no obstruction? Yeah, if it's something that I'm really concerned, you know, I'll put a ureteral access catheter, like a five French, you know, or six French open-ended catheter and put it in and try to resect around. You know, otherwise, just our normal principles of, of TURing somebody, right? You want to get a good specimen, you want to go fast enough that you're not burning up all your tissue, but not so fast that, you know, you're bleeding like stink, you know, before you end. Okay. Uh, I forgot to, to ask you, uh, any specific preoperative antibiotic that you give these patients or just the same as any ureteroscopy? Yeah, just the same as any ureteroscopy for, the, for these individuals. One thing that we, we haven't really touched upon that I think, you know, we don't talk about very often in urology, and it's not really in any of our guidelines for patients that have endoscopic ablations, but that I'll often discuss with patients is giving an intravesical chemotherapy immediately post-operative after an endoscopic ablation of the upper tract, right? So doing a post-operative dose, you know, gemcitabine, or if you're a mitobicin user still, mitomycin after that ablation because you've ablated those those urethelial cells are making their way down via normal drainage. So I will discuss that with patients at the same time. So you're talking about that preoperatively, but while you're there in the OR, when do you decide, I mean, you're going to, do you do it like just for like, like mitomycin for the bladder? Are you doing it on everybody 
as long as it doesn't look like it's there's a gross perforation or anything like that? Yeah, I you know my routine is is to do it as many people as I can. I use gym side beam. That's my my routine. And since I've really been out in practice, it you know when the trial came out, I've I switched to gym side beam kind of right away, and I've always used that. And as long as I don't have an absolute contraindication because of resecting too deep or ablating, you know, worrisome and seeing fat or something, then I'm giving it. When will you leave this stent on a patient? I mean, let's say you do a resection. When will you decide whether, okay, so this patient, I'm going to stent it? Yeah, you know, uh, if I resect a ureteral orifice, I'll probably leave it, you know, just for a short period of time at least. If I've done an ablation in the upper tract, again, I'll probably leave it in a majority of situations but with a string, you know, just for a temporary period of time, just because I put that ureteral access sheath in just for that edema issue or any residual bleeding that they may have. If it's a person who I've done a larger ablation on, I may leave the stent because I have plans to come back and complete an endoscopic ablation a few weeks down the road. So let's talk, uh, are you doing percutaneous resection? Is there a role on, on percutaneous resection? Yeah. There's probably is a role. I personally don't do percutaneous resection. I have those patients that come in every once in a while and, and it kind of perks your interest and, and you think about it, you discuss it. But no, I've not done that. Okay. So I, again, if there was a guideline, maybe maybe we'll know whether it's something real or not. So let's talk about when would you decide, okay, so this patient is going to end up losing the kidney or doing a nephrotractomy. When do you decide that? I mean, is it a patient just with the CT scan that you say, okay, it's not worth doing a biopsy? Is such cases exist? Yeah. So personally, and part of this is just the way that we practice, I like to have a biopsy. So even a patient who has, you know, a big bulky mass, again, I want to look up there and have a biopsy. And that makes sense to patients, you know, that that you have a biopsy before you go taking out a large organ, you know, the kidney that can impact their, their future and impact, you know, renal function, their diabetes, their hypertension, you know, everything else in, in their life. So I prefer to do a ureteroscopy with a biopsy of some sort in those patients. Okay. And are you doing uh, gemcitabine for everybody? even if they still have tumor or just for patients that you're able to resect everything? Yeah, just for a patient that I feel like I get, you know, all of the tumor and I'm not headed back or I'm not planning to do a nephroureterectomy or I'm not planning on doing an intracavitary, you know, chemoablation on uh, their upper tract in the future. Okay, so and let's talk about that. So, so let's say it's a low-grade tumor. Okay. And you're able to resect everything. What are the options for this patient? So I think uh, low grade is, you know, you've mentioned multiple times about guidelines. And so one thing that the Europeans have is, is they have some risk stratification for upper tract disease that we don't have in our AUA guidelines. So we have it in bladder cancer. We talk about low risk, intermediate risk, high risk, but we don't have that in upper tract disease and, and the European guidelines do. And so they talk about low risk patients, which are low-grade patients with a negative cytology with smaller tumor sizes in the collecting system that are also a good indication for nephron sparing, i.e. ablations or whether that be an endoscopic ablation, chemo ablation. So somebody's low-grade, I've ablated them to completion. 
I'm going to talk to them about the ongoing concern for recurrence, right? Recurrence rates are high with endoscopic ablations pushing over 50%, you know, and pushing 70% nearly for those ablations. But is there something else out there? And I will talk to them about intracavitary chemotherapeutics, right? In today's world, it's since 2020, that's gel mito, you know, and, and what that looks like for that patient population. So we're looking at a, a six-week induction course of gel mito with or without maintenance therapy of that ongoing for these low risk or low grade patients versus ongoing endoscopic ablations, right? Because that recurrence is going to happen. It's pushing, like I said, 70%, you know, in, in large studies of patients with uh, low grade disease. And what are you doing for the patients on the gel mito? I mean, are you doing, I think you can do it like a, like a nephrostomy and, and inject it weekly or also take the patient to the OR and just do a retrograde? What's your practice? It's a cool new thing that's chemoablative that gives us options for our patients, right? So I've done a mixed bag. I've, I've injected both ways, but, you know, 80% of the patients I've treated, I've treated with a nephrostomy tube. So gel mito's not any different than other therapies that we're used to as urologists for urethelial. It's a six-week induction course, right? We know the number six. That makes sense to us. We can explain it to our patients. It's just how you physically get the drug to touch the urethelium. Do you do that by doing a cysto once a week with a ureteral you know, catheter up into the, the UPJ to instill the drug? Or do you do it directly through the back through a nephrostomy tube? I've done it through a nephrostomy tube for a majority of my patients that I've treated. Uh, a little bit for convenience. A little bit because the patients don't want to have cysto every week for six weeks. A little bit because I don't have fluoroscopy available, you know, right then and there in my clinic, right? And if I know I have a nephrostomy tube in place and I know that it drains urine, it's in the correct location and I can safely instill my chemotherapy. And in terms, so after, will you do just, just the same like it, it was the bladder? So let's say after six more weeks, you do a utroscopy, take a look inside or, or how, how will you go about that? Once a week installation for six weeks, if the patient has a nephrostomy tube, I bring them back one week later and pull that tube just to get the tube out. And then I'm looking in the kidney, direct visualization with ureteroscopy about, you know, six weeks after completion of therapy for that direct visualization. Are you doing biopsies usually with these patients? I mean, does, is there any change just like, let's say, a patient with BCG that sometimes you get that reddish discoloration that you're not sure where is recurrence or, I mean, eventually you, you understand that it's just the reaction for the BCG, but are you getting some sort of reaction that you don't know exactly what it is? So interestingly, you know, in contrast to BCG, I found that the gel mito or the, the chemotherapy that you put up there, I've seen not really a redness. I've kind of seen a, a yellowy brown necrotic look, you know, within the kind of at the papilla or, or in the renal pelvis that I've kind of termed as my classic appearance post-gel mito, you know, at that first six-week follow-up, I look again three or four months down the road and those seem to resolve themselves. I don't do any biopsies except for cause, meaning if I see a tumor, I try to get a biopsy to ensure I'm not dealing with a high-grade tumor now. You know, a cytology is always a good idea to do as well right? Not that a cytology is going to find your low-grade cancer, but it's going to rule out, ideally, your high-grade tumor that you maybe are missing. 
And this is indicated for low grade also in the ureter, right? It's low grade of the upper urinary tract. So by definition for us as urologists, that's the ureter as well as the renal collecting system. Interestingly, in the clinical trial that got Gelmido approved by the FDA back in 2020, there were no patients who had ureteral tumors in that trial, but it is approved for the entire upper urinary tract. So that includes ureter as well as renal pelvis and calyceal system. And for patients that have like a solitary kidney, safe? I've treated several patients with solitary kidneys with this, and it's weighing out the risks and benefits. The impact of gel mito to the kidney itself has been, you know, deemed to be very safe. One thing that is very important to discuss is, is in the clinical trial, 17% of patients required intervention for ureteral stricture stenosis, right? So that could be very important for somebody with a solitary kidney for what you're dealing with. So definitely something to consider. Make sure you're not obstructing that solitary kidney in those individuals. And it was because of the gelmido or just because of the ureteroscopy? Hard to say. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in, in the trial, all the patients were treated via ureteroscopy and yeah. all patients were treated via, you know, cystoscope. And that is it you know, six weeks in a row of a trauma to the ureter, or is it the drug itself? Hopefully ongoing studies will will tell us what that answer might be. Can you prevent it by, you know, maybe giving steroids? Some people have talked about, can you give, a, you know, should you leave a stent in each week between installations? In my situation, I've treated so many of these patients now via nephrostomy tube, and that's a great pop-off valve, meaning if the patient has pain or stricture-like symptoms, they can, you know, I keep the tube capped. They can uncap it and drain it, right? And then it doesn't require a ureteral stent. Okay, so even though they have the nephrostomy, you don't put them on a bag. It's just for purpose of the chemotherapy. It's truly for access. Okay. So let's talk about high grade now. What are the options? I mean, so, so compared for a distal high grade in the ureter versus a high grade in the renal pelvis. Is ablation still an option or those patients are going to end up with a nephrotractomy? So, you know, I, I would caution people to, to jump again and doing just ablations on patients who can have other things for high grade disease, right? And a couple of things that always come to mind that, that I really think about is we can't forget that high grade disease, you know, especially in the ureter, it doesn't have that backing that we have in the bladder. It doesn't have muscle around it. You know, it's it's in the ureter or it's out of the ureter. And so, you know, one thing that I always remind is don't forget to do your staging. Don't forget to check your pelvic nodes. Don't forget to to look at your chest. You know, I prefer to do a CT chest and, you know, and all of the rest abdomen and pelvis on any patient with high grade disease, whether it no matter where it's at. I will do ablations on people with high grade disease, but those are the people with absolute contraindications to having something else. Our solitary kidneys are disease on both bilateral disease. Our patients who you do a nephroureterectomy or even you do a distal ureterectomy, you're worried about putting the patient on dialysis, you know, something like that. But absolute discussion that the standard of care is taking it out to completion. Is that a nephroureterectomy on distal tumors? It's probably a distal ureterectomy with a lymph node dissection and a, a ureteral reimplant. Okay, so so those patients, well, again, there's no guidelines, but... Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
So a patient, let's say both kidneys are fine, he's not diabetic, good renal function, a distal uteral mass, high grade, you will offer distal uterectomy? Absolutely. One thing that I am always, and this is mostly for myself, for surgical preparation. Again, you know, we said this at the beginning, if you see the mass obvious, do you require the patient, do you make yourself look with a ureteroscopy? And I do. I take all those people back. And part of it is, is I want to see how high that tumor actually goes and try to do a really good retrograde to make sure, you know, am I going to have to reimplant it? Am I going to have to hitch up the bladder, you know, on the psoas or do something more extreme to get that ureter reimplanted? And when, you, when you're doing the, the nephroeuterectomy, I mean, just plain uterectomy, in terms of the bladder cuff, are you doing some? I, I remember at some point, some people were doing TERPs or, or TRBT on, on that UO and then doing the reconstruction. I mean, is there something like a standard right now or, or, or with robotics, it changed and, it's, and you can do a, a very good resection down there in that area? Yeah. So I think, you know, when that really became popular was, you know, we were really talking about laparoscopic surgery and try to keep people from having to sew laparoscopically, right? So I do think robotics has has changed the game on that because you can get a really good bladder cuff and you can get it watertight sewn back together without any problems. You know, so if you're doing a robotic nephroureterectomy, it's hard for me to think in my mind of a time or a reason that you would need to do, you know, a, a Collins knife resecting the, the UO with a TUR type procedure before you, you start on your nephrectomy. And are you leaving any, any drainage in those patients, uh, like, like a JP drainage when you close the bladder? Yeah, I do, you know, but I'm a, a drain placer in, okay. in a majority <laughs> of, of my procedures, you know, a, a straightforward radical nephrectomy, I wouldn't. But anybody that has a potential for a urine leak, I've opened the urinary system, I'm going to leave a drain. Now, these patients only stay in the hospital for a day or two, right? And so it's probably too short of a time period to catch a leak anyway, but it just makes me feel better. And the role of neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemotherapy in, in these cases? What's your take on that? Are you doing on everybody? Yeah, so it's really hard to get a pathologic diagnosis on a biopsy alone that's going to, you know, convince your oncologist that you really are dealing with T2, T3 disease of the ureter, right? Because you just can't get that ureteroscopically or endoscopically. And so if you have an oncologist that you work with, you know, I think that you guys can do that. But it's, it's definitely an implication. So really on the patient who has questionable renal function, knowing that I'm going to take a hit after I get that kidney out, I'll really push that neoadjuvant if I know it's high grade and it looks to be a big bulky tumor and push for that. Otherwise, sometimes you can only get what you can get. And so proceeding to surgery and plus or minus adjuvant chemotherapy if you can get it. And then, of course, nowadays you can always do adjuvant nivolumab. And that's also in the NCCN guidelines for those patients who have T2 or above disease who didn't have chemotherapy or T3 and above who didn't have chemotherapy, T2 and above who did have chemotherapy. So we have a few more options for that individual. So patients that have lymphadenopathy, you will give chemo and then do the, the, the full resection? Absolutely. And in terms of outcomes, what do you tell the patients, those patients that already have some lymphadenopathy there? Yeah, it's always a challenge to describe what those patients are. And it always makes me think 
back to bladder stuff, right? So, you know, patients who have known pelvic nodes or even, you know, retroperitoneal nodes, data is not great on neoadjuvant chemotherapy completed by, you know, followed by consolidative surgery. The outcomes and prognosis is, is fairly poor. So I tell patients that, but I do, you know, now it's 2022 and we do that. It's the best that we've got. And we do have adjuvant options, you know, in today's world. I remember I had this patient, it was a long time ago, a very small mass in the, in the renal pelvis. I had to take her twice to do biopsies. One was very, very bloody. I, I just couldn't see anything. Then the next time I did biopsies, and again, it was a small mass. Then I gave her a call in the post-op, so she went home that day. Like two weeks after, she ended up in, in another hospital, short of breath, she had already metastatic disease to the lungs, and she never had any lymphadenopathy or anything else. I always thought about it. The, we talk about the, the, the water pressure. I mean, I, I don't know, because it, it was, the lungs were everywhere. There was masses. Wow. And it was a small tumor in, in, the, in the kidney. Yeah. You know, I, I think it takes you back to, I think I said it earlier, of don't forget the importance of staging in patients. Yeah, you know, in this patient sounds like maybe, you know, that's a super rare occurrence. But, you know, I think sometimes even when we're doing endoscopic ablations on people, we're seeing them every three months, four months, we're taking them to the OR. And it's so easy to forget or just get lost in translation of ensuring that you're still doing your axial imaging, you're still looking, you know, because you're so focused in on oh, there's a new little tumor. I'm going to zap it with my laser. There's something I'm going to, you know, I can get rid of this. And you you aren't doing that, right? And again, it takes us back to the guidelines. We don't have guidelines to tell us how often should you be doing axial imaging on somebody who you're endoscopically ablating? You know, we don't have anything to tell us what to do, but especially if you're high grade and you know that or it's bulkier tumors, don't forget to look. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, so in that patient, she had the x-ray for the surgery, but just an x-ray, and the x-ray was clear. Maybe she had a CAT scan, definitely, like you mentioned, the staging. So we talk about uh, solitary kidneys. What about patients that have bilateral cancers, I mean, or bilateral uh, upper tract cancer? Have you seen one of those? Yeah, unfortunately, right? That's the nature of urothelial cancer. And it's usually the person who's, you know, still smoking and, and not going to do uh, any stopping or anything for you. But you got to prioritize. It's just like anybody with any other two malignancies, right? And that happens to us. We diagnose lung cancers and urology clinic and all kinds of things. And you figure out which one's the worst one. And it always takes me back, reminder, you know, that the board answer is, is, is take out both of their kidneys and put them on dialysis. Right. And so I'll tell that to patients. I'll say, OK, you know, if I'm taking a test, this is this is what the answer is. But we're going to take a step back and we're going to figure out what's going to be our biggest problem. And we approach that usually go after the bigger, worse, you know, first and then see if you can, you know, control and zap the other side, you know, but it does start stretching us on our our indications. You know, it's what we're trying to do get creative and think of other things to do is, is there a role for BCG? Is there a role for chemoablative, you know, like a gel mito in a high grade patient? There's no data on those, on those things, but that's what we do when we're trying to spare those patients. Have you done any of those things for, for high grade? 
I mean, off-label? So I have not in Gelmido. I know that there are many people around the country who have, you know, in palliative situations. So I'm hopeful that that will be published soon for people to see, because that's really the patients, you know, that we're kind of drawing it at straws. We're trying to come up with something. Could you do an ablation and follow it with a chemotherapeutic, you know, more of like what we think of for bladder cancer, you know, for high-grade disease? So no, you know, I have done, and I haven't done this in several years, but, you know, with somebody with high grade, put a stent in, I'm going to try to give them BCG and try to get it to to splash up into the upper tract. I don't think it works very well, you know, with that refluxing idea, but I've tried it. Well, was that in residency or one? <laughs> I've tried it in my practice, but I've tried it in residency as well. Okay. But like I said, it's been several years since I've done that. I I was underwhelmed with results. And it was a patient with a solitary kidney or? Actually, this was a patient with uh, disease on both sides and who now has bilateral nephroureterectomies. But that's not after several attempts, distal ureterectomy on one side, ablations on the other side, eventual nephroureterectomy a couple years later with the other side. So yeah, did we buy three or four years and not develop metastatic disease? And so we saved three or four years off dialysis. Yeah, maybe it's just the nature of the disease. I mean, who, who knows? Yeah. yeah, hard to say. Okay, yeah. Uh, any other comments? I think this has been great. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I can't think of anything else. You know, and I, I think in conclusion is it's kind of going back to what you said at the very beginning, you know, this guideline thing. And it's important for us as urologists, important for doctors, you know, all over. And so we can look to the NCCN guidelines, but they're not the same. They're not urology guidelines, you know, so it'd be nice to have some of those to help guide us in, in some of these more difficult situations because the bladder guidelines are there. We can extrapolate as much as we want and as much as we try, but the bladder's not the renal pelvis. The bladder's not the ureter. And the implications of diagnosis, the implications of treating those are different. Yeah, so hopefully. Do you know if the AU is working on it or? I've heard talks, but I've heard people talk about it, but mostly in the way that you and I are talking about it. Like, yes, we all need this, but I don't have enough insight into what's happening in AUA and guidelines. So... Maybe after they hear this episode, they, <laughs> they come up with one. There you go. So, there you go. So, Katty, uh, we have here Dr. Murray. Thanks for having being here. Uh, it was a pleasure. And yeah, I, I enjoy it. I, I know more now. I feel more confident doing more stuff, looking for patients to do Gelmato. I mean, for me, it's a rare disease. I, I think in the past three years, I have seen maybe two or not even three patients. They'll come up. They do. Those patients are out there. And so just keep your eyes open and patients show up. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Medavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. <laughs>